Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The latest on the push to get more San Diegans vaccinated. Every one of those superstations and county pods has a contingency to use 100% of the vaccine. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Former Mayor Kevin Faulkner announces a run for governor. I know we can clean up California, and that's why I'm running for governor. I'm running to make a difference, not to make promises. And the economic impact of the pandemic on women and mothers in the workplace, plus a portrait of the economy's impact on working class parents. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right, let's geek out together about the things we love. To find out exactly where we are in the process of vaccinating San Diego County's 3 million residents, KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento talked extensively on Monday with County Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Maschione and Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten. The conversation covered the availability of vaccines, the current difficulty in scheduling a vaccine appointment, and the issue of equitable distribution of the vaccine. Here's some of that interview. Using every dose of vaccine is crucial and you're scheduling appointments to make sure nothing is wasted, but there are inevitably some doses left at the end of the day. And people on social media have told me and and others have written into us that people who may not fit the current tier of eligibility are waiting around vaccination sites. How are you deciding who gets extra doses at the end of the day? So we've shared uh, a talk with like, for instance, at our superstation, having our, uh, points of dispensing uh, locations and our superstation stations having a contingency plan because those things happen. I mean, on two occasions, I've been called 
and and inform that well the lines like today can we provide vaccinations to another group and very early on with the superstation at petco park we decided that we would focus on the homeless population or uh it was um the holiday martin luther king weekend uh we advanced to vaccinating everyone 65 years of age and older as opposed to just 75 and older so that's the way we've handled that in our pod also have a plan uh, of who can they call to get there right away to get vaccinated so that no vaccination or no vaccine dose is lost is there a wait list because people have asked me how do they get on it there is no specific wait list we're at the stories too where people are waiting around but again if they fit the criteria even though they don't have an appointment, I think that's okay because they are 65 years of age and older. They may not have an appointment. They know that at the end of the day, uh, vaccines might be available. It's not a lottery. Again, we're following our own guidance as best we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know, for example, the state just opened up, right? Tier two of, of phase 1B. And what does that include? It includes uh, emergency response, law enforcement, for example, or teachers, uh, grocery, I think, and, and mm-hmm. those type of essential uh, functions. And some of the contingency plans and superstations have been uh, if they, some days they end up with no supplies left. I know that in uh, Chula Vista, for instance, their contingency was if there wasn't anyone without an appointment, 65 and older, uh, law enforcement, mm-hmm. um, that law enforcement was going to be next. So so I think that was a really good approach, and they're t- trying to take that strategy uh, also at the North County uh, Superstation. I know they've done some law enforcement also down at Petco. Obviously, with Father Joe's and the homeless, that's a clear area there uh, to help folks. But uh, we, we discourage the public you know, to just go there in, in lines because every one of those superstations and county pods has a contingency mm-hmm. to use 100% of the vaccine. And so they don't need, you know, you know, people waiting for it. Instead, we ask for patience. And when it's their turn, we promise we'll get them in. You know, talking about people who are currently eligible, we have received a lot of complaints that scheduling is difficult. Either appointments are limited or eligible seniors have a tough time with the technical side. You know, you've made 211 available to those over 75, but that hasn't solved the problem. So how are you addressing this? Thank you. That's a great question in several ways. Um, one, you know, when you think about um, the population we started with, it wasn't, for example, um, population that was more tech savvy or very familiar or comfortable making online appointments. Um, and so we're dealing with the population that's more vulnerable, has the greatest number of challenges. So 211 has been great. One of the things we have done is significantly expanded and expanding as we speak their capability. They need just more staff. And so they've been adding and onboarding a tremendous amount of more staff. That's one. Two, one of the things they, they immediately did, this is um, uh, some part of early next week, last week, is they changed their menu so that when you call 211, it goes more quickly to, you know, prompt. And I think the sequencing was important because it was also going through the menu that was difficult, right, for some to, to guide through that. The third area was working with our, our partners in the community knowing that we're hearing endless stories about how uh, people have helped their family member or, you know, kind of been the advocate for something. And we think that's great, but not everyone has a family member. Not everyone has that person to help them. 
So we have actually reached out to the community, helping to be those advocates as well. Uh, we have people that show up at our, at our vaccination sites that don't have an appointment. Um, we take the time there helping them, um, doing everything we can to get this population in. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. When Dr. Wooten opened it up to the 75 and older, um, the hospitals have the electronic medical record. They have these folks that they've worked with or serving. They've reached out. Um, and a number of hospitals have set up pods uh, and have brought them in. I, I, I will also add, there are over 200 providers, aside from the county, uh, that is ordering uh, vaccines. There are many providers out there that are also providing the vaccine to their patient population. Yep. So I think, Taryn, just to close the loop on this one, we need more appointments, we need more vaccine, because you can have all the capacity, but if you don't vaccine, you're not going to have appointments. To give you an idea, when we opened up yesterday, the North County's vaccination superstation, uh, I was told within minutes, minutes, all appointments were taken for the 65 and older. And Tara, just to provide the context, for uh, phase 1A alone, that is 635,000 individuals, the healthcare personnel. And then for just 65 and over, it's almost 1.2 million. That's the, the number that we have to deal with, and we have nowhere near that amount of vaccine. So as appointments become available, because it's based on a vaccine availability, they're opened up, and so they are quickly uh, scheduled. Both of you have said a number of times you want to approach vaccine distribution through an equity lens. But when I look at the data posted on the vaccine dashboard, we do see a higher concentration of vaccines are going to people in the north central part of the county when we know the South Bay has had higher rates of coronavirus. So how do you explain this and, and what's being done to improve on this? Uh, I think we'll both respond to that. We're both pretty passionate about this topic. We knew we had to improve upon um, the convenience and access where people live. And so we guided our work with the Healthy Places Index um, developed by the state, uh, tells us where, and we already know where those health equity communities are. And so we overlaid uh, our uh, vaccination sites in those communities. When, when you look at one of the first areas, we had to start uh, Petco and South Bay. We did the South Bay saturation strategy for testing. Proud to say we did the South Bay saturation strategy for vaccination. We have a vaccination site in Imperial Beach um, in Chula Vista County. These are county pods with the Superstation Chula Vista uh, National City pod. And we're opening up, I think, uh, it's tomorrow in San Ysidro. These sites are open up for everyone. So but in close proximity, we know there'll be hopefully more people from south. We know that when we had first more of our sites in south and in north, there are people throughout the county coming, just like people from south can go to north. But we also know that the, the reality is that people in the community is going to go to those trusted sites. So uh, the Tubman Chavez Center, which is a very popular testing site, we converted it to begin as a two-day back site. It's a trusted source. So we're going to what, what the community has told us, uh, where, where they want uh, and they, they can trust going for vaccinations, right? So that's very important. Just like we you know, did a vaccination site in El Cajon or or in Escondido and uh, Oceanside, you know, St. Marcos, it's following where the data tells us where we need to be. So that has not changed at all. I'm going to turn to Dr. Wu and talk to you a little bit about why the numbers may look the way they do at this point in time. 
a- absolutely. And if you look at the uh, graphic, the vaccination sites aren't in central. They really are in the south region. They aren't just in the central region. They are in the south region. There are locations in the northern part of the county that also reflect an increased number of positive cases or increased rates. So that's why we have followed suit with placing locations in our east and northern part of the county. The first group of individuals that were vaccinated uh, were healthcare professionals. And that's a reflection of the individuals that make up our healthcare personnel. So uh, there's a complaint uh, voice from community members that there's a low number of African-Americans. Well, most individuals that are in healthcare are not African-American or Latino, to be quite honest with you. So it's a reflection of what our infrastructure looks like. As we look at the 65 and older, we need to separate that out from the first month of vaccination. And then we will see, uh, look more closely at the uh, race and ethnicity there to see if it's different. And that's what we are currently in the process of doing. Next, we're supposed to be vaccinating people based on some select industries, educators, for example, and then do it based on age. But like we saw with healthcare workers, there are a lot of different job titles within these certain industries to prioritize. So how will you approach um, these other uh, job categories when we do get there? Well, the next uh, three groups will of essential workers will be our law enforcement, which is part of the emergency services. Even those of us here fall in that category. Then there will be the uh, educators and childcare workers, followed by food and agriculture. Those are the three essential uh, uh, sectors or essential workers that we will begin to vaccinate uh, later this month. And then the state wants to then focus the next age groups, which will be 50 to 64 years of age, then 16 to 49 with high risk that are high risk. That's their proposed strategy going forward. It should be related to if they have increased risk, like health conditions. We need to follow the science and the data that tells us that is the group that is highest at risk and need. If you all open it up at the same time, you still were, we still have not gotten about, we think, a fair number of folks 65 and older that still want the vaccine. Opening it up will just then compete with those limited appointments where the people who still need it in the very early phases are going to be struggling to get it. So I, I think we have to be you know, good stewards here, follow the science and what the data tells us on the sequencing, and do it more orderly. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento interviewing County Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Maschione and Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten. Kevin Faulkner is officially running for governor. The former San Diego mayor made a public announcement at a rally in Los Angeles today. He tweeted yesterday about his reasons for running. I know we can clean up California, and that's why I'm running for governor. I'm running to make a difference, not to make promises. If we're willing to think differently, to demand results, we can make the powerful answer to the powerless. We can kick the insiders out. Bring the outsiders in. We can right these wrongs by writing a better future for California. 
Faulkner had been exploring a run in 2022, but the recall effort against Governor Gavin Newsom prompted his early move into the race. That recall effort is gaining steam fueled by frustration over pandemic lockdowns, school closures, and vaccine slowdowns. But a Republican candidate still has an uphill climb in blue California, and Faulkner's recent vote to re-elect President Trump may not help. Joining me is UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. And Thad, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Former Mayor Faulkner has been seen by some as the moderate who can revive the GOP in California. What are the reasons for that belief? Well, I think that's a statement of, of where the Republican Party is today, right? That Kevin Faulkner is is really in, in the center in some ways of, of, of California politics because he's not a Donald Trump Republican, right? He has not taken the approach on issues like immigration and climate change that have made Donald Trump and, and, and his Republican brand so anathema to independent and Democratic voters in California. So it gives the Republicans really their, their best shot in the increasingly blue state of California. But isn't the Republican Party in California still the party of Trump? That's the question, right? The Republican Party nationally and in California is now making this decision about how to define itself and embracing a candidate uh, like Kevin Faulkner, who has taken different approaches on many issues, who is, yes, that low-tax Republican, but someone who's much more socially moderate and someone who hasn't dipped into the lightning rod politics uh, that have made the Republican brand so toxic in California, that could be something that turns around the image of the Republican Party, making it even relevant in in a way that Republicans haven't been in the last decade in this state. Kevin Faulkner says that his campaign has already been able to raise a lot of money. What does that tell us? Well, I think that tells you that he has his eyes on the primary challenge, right? That anyone trying to get their message out to 40 million Californians needs to be thinking about, like, where are they going to be able to raise that money? And what does that say about the candidacy? I think the investment we're seeing from the Republican establishment right now in the recall campaign that has gotten much more professionalized, much less fringy, but has those those that, that real financial backing, that can get you some of the way. But Kevin Faulkner is going to need 30, 50, 60 million dollars to get a message out there that is different than just the Republican brand. Yeah, let's talk about the recall. Who's behind it and how far has it gotten? Well, a lot of groups are behind the recall. And, and this often happens when you have a grassroots movement that uh, that is taken over by the establishment. So you have some 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 groups that really have have d- ties that have disturbed many political observers, ties to the hardcore uh, potentially insurrectionist, right? But then you also have uh, sort of moderate mainstream Republicans who've come in with, with independent recall efforts to try to advance uh, to get the paid signature gatherers that it would meet, that will be needed to get to the over uh, over one and a half million signatures, ballot signatures that need to be gathered by that March 17th deadline that the recall is working towards. It looks like it has the professionalization and the institutional support to potentially get there, setting us up for a fall recall. Now, the new poll numbers out today are not good news for Governor Newsom. His approval rating has plummeted. They're no shock, but what really what they're showing is that Gavin Newsom has come down from this high watermark of 60% approval that he had when we were still talking about a California miracle, when we were talking about how California's uh, strict regulatory system had kept the virus at bay. 
as we've all seen in the last two or three months, that that has changed radically. California has been a worldwide hotspot. And at the same time, Gavin, New- Gavin Newsom, right, any governor is going to be second guessed, uh, especially when, when he has so many stumbles like his his dinner at the French Laundry. So, so I think everyone is expecting his poll numbers to subside, but he's still in the high 40s in his approval rating. He still has more people supporting him than not. And, and that the question is, can he turn this around as the state gets a handle on the pandemic as schools begin to reopen, does he have room to rise again if he moves towards a fall recall? He's got time and he's got a real chance. Is it your belief that the criticism toward Newsom's handling of the pandemic is justified or is he taking the rap because this pandemic has just been so awful? Look, any governor would have a tough time with this challenge of walking the tightrope between the public health measures, the really dramatic ones that are needed to to keep this vicious virus at bay and reopening the economy and getting things moving again, because that has huge effects on, on, on a wide on all types of Californians. So it's a really tough job. Governor Newsom has had some clear missteps, right? His French laundry dinner that, that that was juxtaposed from what he was asking the state to do. That was a dumb mistake that he was fairly criticized for. Going forward, I think the, the right way to judge him will be looking at sort of whether California can get a handle on this pandemic, whether he can bring a coalition together to fulfill his goal of reopening schools, and, and whether the economy will get back on track. If the recall petition gets enough signatures, Kevin Faulkner isn't going to be the only challenger, right? No, the big question will be, are we going to see another field of 150 plus candidates uh, with Gary Coleman, with with adult film stars? Are are we going to see multiple Republicans taking their shot? Are we going to see a Donald Trump style Republican who might enter the race really get that base support and and crowd out a candidate like Kevin Faulkner, who's going to try to run from the middle. That's going to be a strategic conversation. The Republican leaders, Republican donors, and, and the top potential candidates are going to have to have. Kevin Faulkner looks like the Republicans' best shot. Okay, we will check back with you as this story unfolds. I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thank you very much. All right, thanks so much. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. The pandemic has changed all of our lives in one way or another, but that impact has not been felt equally. The percentage of serious illness and deaths from COVID has been higher among Latino and Black Americans, and more people of color have also been hurt financially. But among all races... Women seem to have borne the brunt of the economic impact of COVID, something that may continue to affect their careers and lives for years to come. Organizations across the country are trying to assess the damage and find out what we've learned from this disaster that could help us recover. Joining me is a leader in one of those organizations, Shana Gross is Director of Programs with the San Diego Workforce Partnership. And Shana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
One recent statistic seems to frame this problem of women losing out economically. CNN reported that U.S. women lost 156,000 jobs last month, while men gained 16,000. What are the reasons for that? Um, Well, I think there are um, a few reasons that go into that. One is that women tend to work in the sectors where we're losing the most jobs, places like hospitality and retail. And so, you know, obviously those have been closed because of the pandemic. The other reason is that, you know, anytime we see this tension in a family, all of a sudden we have all of these kids who used to be in school. Think of a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old who used to be in school and now are home and they can't be home by themselves uh, they need some sort of childcare and supervision, and it historically and you know statistically has been the women who end up dropping out of the workforce and staying home to take care of the kids. And so that's why women who would still have jobs may have been forced to give them up during the pandemic. Is that right? Absolutely. And when you think about women who are making maybe $35,000 a year, and then the cost of having childcare for two school-age children, you know, the seven and nine-year-old I mentioned, that just doesn't pencil out. And so sometimes it just doesn't make sense to go to work if you're going to have to spend that much on childcare. There are other women who are dropping out to take care of other family members. Uh, you know, women tend to be the caretakers. And so whether it's adult care or child care, uh, they're the ones who either drop to part time or, you know, take a leave of absence or, or leave the workforce altogether in order to be able to take care of the family. Is it also fair to say that the women who could f- afford it least have been affected the most by these job losses? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what's happened is that they've been faced with really a, a terrible set of options in making these decisions. And um, and often the jobs that they're in don't feel safe. And maybe you have an older adult who lives with you in your home and you don't feel safe being on the front lines, you know, some of these essential workers. And when you look at how much you're making by working there and the risk that you could bring home to your family, people are making the decision, women especially, to to, to not work and keep their family safe. Can you give us an idea of what you've heard from women who come to the Workforce Partnership about their situations? Yeah, we've had a lot of women who have come and are um, maybe have been laid off, are looking for work. Many people don't feel safe uh, being in the workforce right now. It's getting better now that we're seeing the vaccination rates go up and and it's feeling like there's a a light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of unknowns and, and people really didn't feel safe working you know, I, I don't want to call out a particular sector, but you think of the places where you're more highly exposed, you know, at the grocery store or working in retail or home health aides. And those jobs don't tend to pay the best and they have a lot of risk associated with them. So we saw a lot of people wanting to switch careers or switch jobs to something that they felt was safer. Um, And a lot of people talking about, you know, I need something that's flexible. A lot of the lower paying jobs don't have the ability to work from home also. You know, many of us have had the luxury of being able to work from home. But when you're talking about front lines and, and the, the many of the layoffs and the lost jobs that were ref- the CNN study was referring to, there, there's not an ability to transition to those to be f- working from home. So people are looking for things that they can use their skills, 
still be able to take care of their kids. You know, I'm not going to get in trouble if they hear my child crying in the background or if I need to take a break to help somebody with homework or get them set up for school. And that's really hard to find, particularly as a brand new worker. Um, you know, anytime you start a job, of course, you want to put your your best foot forward and and be able to say yes as much as possible. And I think a lot of women are finding themselves in a position where they have a lot of caveats. They have a lot of considerations that they need in order to start a new job. And, and that can feel like you're starting off on um, uneven footing. You yourself are a working mom. What has your experience been like juggling work and family during the pandemic? It's been a challenge. Uh, both my husband and I are working from home and we've had to really coordinate schedules. Um, I'm lucky that I have family support nearby and, and they take care of my son um, for a few hours each day. But I've had to become comfortable with um, him running into my office at any given time. And you know, yesterday I was on a meeting and he was um, building his rocket ship uh, launcher next to me. And, you know, you just have to, it, it doesn't look perfect. Um, or, or maybe this is the new definition of what perfect looks like. You know, this is the reality that we're all dealing with. And I think you just have to be juggle and, and give yourself some grace and um, hope that others are, are being understanding as well. The pandemic, as you say, seems to have exposed gender inequities that have always existed, but we haven't paid attention to. Is what we're seeing the result of having an inadequate social safety net? Absolutely. Here in San Diego, you know, before the pandemic, we had a childcare shortage gap of about 190,000 spots. So, you know, children that don't have a stay-at-home parent but need childcare, they're under 12. Um, so that was pre-pandemic. After the pandemic and during the pandemic, we know that a lot of childcare facilities have had to either close or decrease their capacity because the ratios for provider to children has been reduced in order to try to um, you know stay safe. And that's um, you know I think we're really seeing now a system that was broken before, but has been even more impacted. What changes would the workforce partnership like to see here in San Diego to address these gaps that affect women's? ability to balance home and work? I think there are a few changes that that we can see. Um, certainly, I, we encourage businesses to really look at um, how are they doing? How are they serving women and new parents? And, and to look at their data. Um, what's their new parent retention rate? And, and not just on you know, how many people return from uh, maternity or paternity leave, but 12 months after someone has had um, a child join their family, how are they retaining them? Who's getting promoted? Uh, what are employee surveys saying? And I think that will really um, be in, in illuminative uh, to show some of the, the issues there. We would also love to see, um, you know, flexible schedules as needed and flexible workloads phasing back. Paid parental leave is something that most uh, employers don't offer, and, and that can be really huge. And then looking, you know, I, I think about things that um, the city and the county can do as well. They've been incredible in um, helping essential workers and having vouchers for childcare. But there are other things we can be doing about looking at co-locating childcare in their buildings so that we have low or no rent, uh, and then the childcare provider could invest that in better wages and better quality. We can also change some of our policies to incentivize and prioritize family-friendly businesses. Oh, that's a long list. <laughs> I want to thank yeah. you, Sh Shana Gross, <laughs> Director of Programs with the San Diego Workforce Partnership. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
President Joe Biden and Democrats in Congress are proposing an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati takes a look back at lessons learned from California's own $15 minimum wage debate a half decade ago. California officially started on the path to a $15 minimum wage in 2016, when Governor Jerry Brown signed a law that would get the state there in 2022. It's a very important step forward. Let's keep it going. We're not stopping here. But the so-called fight for 15 began a few years earlier, when fast food workers went on strike to demand a raise. In response, cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles passed their own $15 plans, building momentum for a statewide increase. We wouldn't have gotten there without other cities who were willing to go first. That's LaFonza Butler. She led the statewide minimum wage push as head of SCIU Local 2015, California's largest union. She says even Governor Brown had to be brought along by public pressure. Now, Butler sees a similar dynamic on the national level, with a majority of states increasing their minimum wage before the federal government. If I am a member of Congress or if I am, you know, uh, President Biden, I now have proof points um, that economies um, can continue to survive, local businesses can continue to survive. San Bernardino Congressman Jay Obernolte was in the state legislature back in 2016. He was among the Republicans who voted against the $15 plan over concerns it would harm business. Now in Congress, Obernolte still doesn't like the idea. Or Biden's plan of including the minimum wage in a larger coronavirus relief package. In California, at least we had a standalone debate on this issue. Then there's the question of whether Congress should apply a minimum wage increase across the board, like California did. Obernolte prefers an approach where the minimum wage is higher in higher cost areas. So the question that we're asking is, why is that approach not the best one? Why, how can you argue that the cost of living in California is the same as the cost of living in Iowa? Back in 2016, some Democratic legislators, such as Jimmy Gomez, liked the idea of having regional minimum wages that could go even higher than $15 in pricey areas like L.A. But Gomez, who now represents L.A. in Congress, says his biggest lesson from California's minimum wage fight is... Don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Gomez says a debate over where to set each region's wage could have dragged on for months, even years, while the purchasing power of a raise withered away. Do not get so wedded on your own particular idea of how to increase the minimum wage. Let's just increase the minimum wage. He hopes Democrats act quickly as Biden's plan begins to move through Congress this week. I'm Guy Marzarati. A street medicine team in Bakersfield is working to educate people experiencing homelessness about COVID-19. As Valley Public Radio's Maddie Belenos reports, they're also combating misinformation about the vaccine. On this cloudy morning in northeast Bakersfield, Dr. Matthew Baer walks along a narrow trail of damp fallen leaves to a small homeless encampment. Melissa, you doing all right? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. All right, COVID negative? They told you? No. They didn't tell you. Well, I'm telling you. Congratulations. <laughs> Bear tells his patient, Melissa, that she's tested negative for the novel coronavirus. It's her second negative test. In addition to administering COVID-19 tests, the team provides medical check-ins, food, prescribed medication when needed, and syringe exchanges. 
When the pandemic first hit, Bear says they paused their weekly visits to figure out how they could continue without exposing staff or patients to the virus. You're talking about a population with multiple chronic um, illnesses, a lot of chronic lung disease, a ton of chronic lung disease actually. So when we started finding out the nature of COVID, we thought, oh, for sure, the unsheltered are going to get hit the worst. But he says it was quite the opposite. Initially, when we came out, people were really reluctant to even get tested for COVID. Um, and then as, as one person got tested, someone else saw and said, well, hey, can I get tested? And it sort of spread. The doctor says he hasn't seen a single positive test, which means the team can continue to focus on treating the roughly 30 people they see each week. My test results come in. So, well, you don't have coronavirus. A woman named Shelly, who chose not to share her last name, receives her fourth negative test result. Shelly lives with her partner in a tent about 10 yards away from others in the encampment. She says it's easy to social distance from the general population, except when she goes to the store. When I go to the store, I get concerned. I put on my mask and everything, try to protect myself, yeah, hand sanitizer. But there's a lot of other beliefs going on about that. There are also beliefs circulating about the COVID-19 vaccine. Shelley says she won't take it based on the research she's done online. It changes your DNA. Some people could die from it. Um, if I had a PhD, I could explain it better. <laughs> but medical experts, including Bear, say it won't change your DNA. Shelley remains skeptical, but she says she might consider it if Bear recommended it to her. But I would want to see every tiny ingredient in that type of shot. In a situation like this, Bear says he tries to educate about the safety of the vaccine and compare the risk versus the benefit. But he says he understands why the unsheltered population might be hesitant. There's a lot of different reasons people might refuse the vaccine, right? For someone who's lived in this situation, there's probably a huge distrust of systems. And at this point, they can't even offer the vaccine, Bear says. Until then, the team is working on preemptive measures like treating ongoing medical conditions, getting the most susceptible people housing, and building trust. Due to the success of the street medicine effort, Dr. Bear says they've started a second team in Bakersfield, and the clinic hopes to start another one in Fresno. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
The coronavirus pandemic has brought to light a child care crisis in this country. But for many workers, particularly in low-wage or essential work jobs, the crisis isn't new. The stories of some of these mothers are told in the film Through the Night, which profiles a 24-hour child care center in New York. Here's a clip. I never really thought of overnight child care until I had to use it. What? I've been working seven days, so almost two months. If I'm not working one job, I'm working in another job. Hi, Mommy. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Love you guys very much. It's not just a job. This is really our life. My children, ever since they was the age of two years old, they had to share me with other children. I remember my children saying, Mommy, why do they have to come first? Mommy! As parents, you make sacrifices. It's not their fault. So I just do what I can. Through the Night is part of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, which kicks off today, hosted virtually by the Museum of Photographic Arts. Joining me is the film's director and producer, Loida Limbaugh. Loida, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, for this documentary, you spent some time following several working mothers as they navigated child care and work that requires them to need child care outside of the standard school or daycare hours. Tell us about these women and the kind of people who tend to, to need this sort of care. So, yes, we spent a few years uh, with the mothers and caregivers of this community of these tots in New Rochelle, New York. Uh, our protagonists are all people that we would now call essential workers. Marisol Valencia is a single mother of two girls uh, who has been working three, two to three jobs consistently over the last few years uh, because none of her employers want to give her full-time hours in order to avoid paying health insurance and other benefits. Uh, and so she's been caught in a, in a cycle of very um, irregular schedules and, and work hours that are, are almost nonstop. Uh, and then Shinona Tate, who we also spent time with in the film, is a pediatric ER nurse uh, who is also a single mother of two children and works the night shift. She works from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then Nunu and Patrick, who run the daycare and have done so for over two decades, uh, provide care to, you know, the children of Marisol, Shinona, and many other families in this community uh, around the clock as well. So they themselves uh, are barely able to get any sleep. And what are some of the barriers families of color, particularly women, face in the economy? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. You know, oftentimes when people uh, watch the film or we have conversations about the film, uh, we hone in on the childcare crisis, uh, which is, you know, for obvious reasons. But I would also say that beyond the childcare crisis, um, there's just a, an overall crisis, right? If you take the case of Marisol, who is working multiple low-wage jobs because employers want to avoid, you know, paying for health insurance and other things. Um, you know, that is a matter of, you know, when you think of the challenges, it's a matter of uh, the lack of a living wage, right? The lack of affordable, accessible health insurance, you know, all these different issues, uh, you know, collide in many ways in the lives of working class people. But particularly, right, when you add race and gender to anything in the United States, 
communities of color and women of color always come out on the bottom and really bear the brunt of all of our broken systems. And just by your inclusion in the Human Rights Watch Film Festival means that we watch this documentary through a lens of thinking, is the way the system is set up for working mothers a human rights issue? Can you talk to me about that? Sure. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely a human rights issue. Uh, you know, I, I won't even talk about it in political or social terms. I will just say we have an economy uh, where we have normalized the fact that people work multiple jobs, work around the clock, uh, and still have to choose between paying rent or buying groceries on any given month. Uh, And these are people that are doing everything quote unquote, you know, correct, right? The things that society tells you to do, if you work hard, you will be able to provide and advance in life. Uh, And instead we have this very brutal uh, and and harmful system in place uh, that asks people to to make these kinds of uh, sacrifices. All of the folks in the film are working around the clock. None of them get any more than three to four hours of sleep a night. Sleep is perhaps one of the most essential human necessities, um, you know, alongside with water, right, and and food. Uh, And again, we have gotten to a point uh, in the sort of U.S. brand of capitalism where sleep has been turned into some sort of luxury that only the lucky few who are privileged enough have access to. Uh, and, and the worst part of it all is that in many ways, all of this is very invisible. Uh, the, these realities, the realities of women of color and, and working mothers, you know, low income folks uh, get uh, neglected uh, and oftentimes in feminist spaces and in feminist conversations. And they're also overlooked uh, by the labor movement. You know, the, the, the face of labor in the United States is still very male, overwhelmingly white, despite the fact that our labor force is increasingly made up of women um, and and increasingly women of color. This film was made pre-pandemic, but can you tell us how this system is faring during COVID uh, with these uh, folks who were highlighted in particular, Nunu and the mothers you followed? Uh, Part of me, the, the immediate answer is, the system is a hot mess <laughs> and it's completely fallen apart. Um, I think we're, we're in, in systems collapse uh, with the pandemic. Something like upwards of 60% of childcare providers have closed their doors due to COVID. Uh, and the ones that have remained open are often centers like Nunu and Patrick's who are caring for the children of essential workers. They haven't laid any of their staff off uh, because they feel a sense of responsibility and loyalty uh, to their, you know, the, their support staff. Uh, and they have, you know, all the other expenses, uh, not, not to mention being frontline workers in some ways uh, in terms of supporting families that are experiencing you know, food insecurity or housing insecurity or unemployment or, you know, any range, right, of mental health issues or, you know, physical health issues. These childcare um, providers are 
much more than childcare. They are in many ways uh, the social safety net that the system and the government refuses to provide to working families. Um, and so they've been, you know, Nuna and Patrick have been playing that role throughout the pandemic and they're, um, they're weary. Uh, and, and I think in, in, in some ways also feeling um, some anger uh, and, and disappointment uh, because when we do as a society talk about essential workers and we sort of, you know, hand out our symbolic gestures of gratitude to essential workers, oftentimes we don't even include people like Nuno and Patrick, right? We, we talk about nurses or firefighters or teachers, or, uh, but we don't talk about a childcare provider or a home health aide or the janitors that are keeping hospitals clean, right? There, there's, there are all these people who quite literally do the work that makes all other work possible, who we just refuse to see, respect, and value uh, in the United States. The film is called Through the Night, and it is part of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, with five documentaries screening through the Museum of Photographic Arts this week, a screening of Through the Night, and live Q&A with director Lloyda Limbaugh takes place tomorrow at 7 p.m. We have links at kpbs.org, and I have been speaking with Lloyda Limbaugh. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.